This episode is sponsored by Stanford University's Strategies for Sustainability Professional Education Program. Explore the frameworks and tools needed to promote sustainability in your organization. Courses online and in person. Visit globalimpact.stanford.edu. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, when blockchain met supply chain, why corporate action on climate policy is coming to an activist near you, some concrete advances for greener cement, and how VR and big data are creating a fresh code of innovation for paint. We're brushing up this week on 350. It's March 29th, 2019, the last business day of the month. I hope March is going out like a lamb wherever you are. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from New Jersey, as always, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather, is it spring yet? I have my window open. <laughs> Great. That's called progress. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, that is a big thing for me. I am a open air kind of gal, even in the middle of the summer, I, it takes me a lot, a lot of hot, <laughs> hot and humid weather to, to turn the air conditioning on. So or cold and snowy happy. weather too, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, the, but it is, it is absolutely spring. I'm happy. The birds are chirping. I'm watching things like hawks circling and and doing crazy, uh, spring runs at, at animals, which is nutty, but, uh, yeah, um, I'm very happy. Well, as long as that's not vultures circling, that sounds like fun. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Good. Um, and, um, wow, it's a lot going on this week, as usual. Uh, um, I was in Houston, Space City, as its official nickname has it, um, and I visited uh, Engie, this uh, large uh, energy company that's... Uh, coming together uh, of a number of, of companies, Suez and some others that has, has rolled up a number of companies into Angie over the past few years, uh, based in mm -hmm. France, but large North American headquarters uh, presence. And I uh, got to speak to a, a employee group there. It was pretty mm -hmm. interesting. Houston? Houston. Uh, Houston must have been beautiful, actually, this time of year. Um, yeah, I didn't see a lot of it, but the, it was it was nice weather and, and all that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, got to go over to the uh, also uh, visit the uh, Houston headquarters for Exxon Mobil Chemical. Well, Exxon Mobil and the chemical is one little part of this sprawling um, futuristic campus. I had no idea. It's it's pretty remarkable space, uh, but uh, uh, just beautifully designed. But I had a great conversation with uh, some of the uh, leadership there and sustainability at ExxonMobil Chemical. Um, interesting things happening in plastic with a lot more to come. And mm -hmm. they're a prime player in the Alliance to End Plastic Waste. And so I got a little progress report mm -hmm. on that. So mm -hmm. that's my week. How about you? Um, so what have, I've been doing a lot of different things this week. Boy, I'm helping build some sessions for cir circularity. So um, I've got, was digging down into uh, figuring out who the best speakers would be for, for a couple of things I'm thinking about. I've got a 
panel on food waste and not just food, you know, sort of in the in the corporate sector, like it, with within food services, like on a corporate campus or or within um, a hotel or something like that, more that level of, of um, addressing food waste than actually out in the quote supply chain, the, you know, the distribution part of, of the food and agriculture industry. Um, you know, so just poking around on that, uh, we've got a job opening. I'll just do a little plug for that. We have an associate editor position in Oakland, California. So we've been looking at a lot of uh, resumes for that. Just a busy planning week and and uh, exciting. Lots of exciting things. Well, uh, circularity is the next order of business from the event space. It's coming up in the middle of June in Minneapolis, and, and that's going to be good. And, and uh, food waste, yeah, food waste isn't necessarily thought of as part of the circular economy, but anytime you're creating value from waste product, uh, that qualifies. So, well, speaking of food waste and food in general, let's serve up the Week in Review. So Joel, I, I love it when you get inspired and you definitely got inspired this week with uh, your your big essay for Two Steps Forward, Corporate Climate Action, a Matter of Policy. And this great survey, actually a couple of different surveys and reports that came out last week, one from the Environmental Defense Fund, which looks at sort of not just who's taking action on climate and, 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 and so forth, but who's taking action on climate with their strategy and with their policies, right? With their, the public advocacy they do. And I think what I really appreciated about the, the essay that brings us to attention is the fact that, and, and you and I have talked about this a lot of, like a lot over drinks, but you, you see these great commitments by companies and this amazing work by sustainability teams. And yet behind the scenes, we know that on, on the other side of the, 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 the executive corner of the building, um, there's people working on lobbying against those very policies. Um, or, you know, maybe they've got someone who's doing a, a policy in, in support of it, but, you know, they're not talking about it. Or maybe, you know, in worst case, they're, they're being completely silent. So, I mean, just it just boggles my mind how this sort of disconnect. And so and you have a lot of quite uh, specific thoughts about it. So why don't you tell me what inspired you to write, write this essay this week? Well, as you say, this is kind of an old topic, which is companies doing one thing or, uh, on climate and doing another thing on lobbying. But there's a bigger issue here, which is that we've reached a point now in climate change and corporate sustainability where so many companies are doing so much around their operations, their products, their services, their supply chains, facilities, and all of that. But they're not doing anything on the policy side, or as you say, they some of them are doing, belong to groups that are lobbying against proactive climate policies. And that's not just true in the United States, but the US, given its uh, reticence or dragging its hind, hind legs on this topic, uh, not doing anything, is, is sort of the center of action. So this report from the Environmental Defense Fund is based on work that in a British nonprofit called Influence Map did. They created, uh, they ranked companies and looked at companies' uh, engagement uh, on climate versus their engagement on uh, lobbying around climate. And they 
graded companies and came up with some some uh, conclusions around that. But I think what was most interesting was what they didn't do, which is to look at the companies that are just sitting on the sidelines, that aren't doing anything uh, on a policy front, on the lobbying front. Uh, you can. It's easy to laud the companies that are speaking out uh, in favor of climate policies or ding the companies that are belong to some groups, uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce being one example, that are working against climate policy. But in the, in the big, fat middle of that bell curve are most companies that are just sitting there. And so what we're finding now, this is uh, there's starting to be some movements, and I think there's going to be more. I know there's going to be more coming in the next, uh, this year and next, campaigns to shine a light on what companies are and aren't doing on the policy front to uh, reward the leaders to and, and, and really move everyone else uh, along. Uh, and one, one interesting part of that is, is taking a page from the LGBT movement uh, and, and how uh, progress was made on that. And one of the ways it happened was through employees. Employees saying, I don't want to work for a company that discriminates. Uh, I want uh, my company to uh, adopt these policies and, and certain kinds of policies that are more inclusive uh, and uh, even persuading companies not to do business in states with uh, what they considered regressive policies. So some of this is going to be engaging the C-suite. Some of this is going to be engaging uh, the grassroots within companies. I think this is going to be one of the next big areas of activity in corporate climate action and activism. Right. And one thing that, that we could do as journalists is to look at, you know, so we, we are deluged with rankings, right? So this, this set of companies does this and this set of companies does that. And there's a lot of different ways of looking at uh, sustainability or corporate so social responsibility. And this lens is not usually in those rankings. So I think I'm going to start paying more attention to whether or not it is included. And if it's not, why not? So... Let's move over to concrete, that uh, ubiquitous material that uh, itself is one of the uh, biggest sources of climate emissions. Uh, 8%, I, I believe, uh, of world's greenhouse gas emissions come from the manufacture of concrete, of which cement is, is a major part. And there's uh, been a lot of efforts for a number of years uh, on how do we improve that? How do we make greener concrete and our contributor Sarah Murphy had a terrific piece sort of summing up a lot of what's going on out there and in, in, uh, how the trade associations, how startups, uh, how some uh, bigger uh, legacy companies are, are starting to take on the climate problem of cement. Right and you know I think this is getting more attention partly because of the carbon removal movement right so more people are talking about the need to draw down carbon and that that points back to this sector. And just for a little bit of perspective, that 8% number that you quoted just a moment ago. So if you took that in, it took the cement industry um, and looked at it like a country, it would be the third largest emitter in the world after China and the United States. That's so an that, amazing statistic. Yep, yep, yep. So I just, it, it makes, it, it boggles the mind. My mind is often boggled. <laughs> I just, I, I say that every that, weekend. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> uh, but the, she really looks at two things, that, as you mentioned. One is the, the, the sort of legacy folks. And um, props go to some com companies in India, right? So they're looking at 
what goes into the, the um, production process, um, how they could use other materials within their, um, their cement, so fly ash and like using, using that within the cement and, and replacing some of the, um, the things that they're doing with their traditional mixes. They're looking at innovative materials that would change the carbon footprint of their processes. You've also got folks like Heidelberg Cement um, that are focusing on things like carbon capture. So they're testing um, what they are billing to be the first carbon-free cement plant. And so that, that is uh, primarily focused on, a statement focused on the production processes. So they're, they're looking at um, fuels, the fuels they're using in that plant and carbon capture technology. So they're, they're testing that sort of thing. And then you have the, the innovators that are embedding carbon into concrete. So they're looking at, at ways of, of sort of reverse engineering, if you will, the, the, the emissions profile. Um, and those are companies like Carbon Cure and um, I think it's a, a CO2 Concrete, or I, I don't know how you pronounce that particular company's name. But anyway, so lots of different things to think about. And, and movement is accelerating. Yeah. And as you said, some of this action is taking place in India where there is a massive building boom taking place mm -hmm. there. And mm -hmm. they're using uh, uh, a number of different things like fly ash and slag that that come from uh, uh, other carbon intensive sectors. Uh, so fly ash comes from coal combustion, coal fired power plants. Uh, and you can take that and mix it into concrete in a way that doesn't compromise strength or durability. Slag comes from iron ore processing. Similarly, you can use it that way. And, and, and that's just a great story of taking waste products from other sectors, using it to replace a substance that has a high greenhouse gas uh, 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 density and um, solving a couple of problems. There's a circular uh, economy thing going on there. There's a carbon uh, reduction or removal piece going on there. I love these stories, and I think we're going to be. Uh, this has been going on for a while. Been, uh, the quest to develop greener concrete has been happening for probably a decade or more, uh, but it looks like some of these things are starting to come to market, and that's a good thing. And while we're talking about India, let's move over to a piece that you did, Heather, in a recent Verge weekly newsletter uh, about blockchain in supply chains and and sort of what's going on in India, and of all things, and you wouldn't associate necessarily for blockchain, cotton. Right. So blockchain, as you know, is one of my favorite topics, as uh, we've said often on the podcast. This is a supply chain application. So um, for those of you who aren't so focused on this, uh, blockchain is interesting because it's a way of verifying and securing information um, and, and getting it from point A to B and sort of tracking a trail of, um, in this case, provenance or custody. So the, the particular um, focus of this piece is on a pilot project that a company called Bext360, which is one of the innovators in supply chain uses and applications for blockchain. They're, they're working on a project with um, that they're calling the Organic Cotton Traceability Pilot. So it involves a number of companies, so Kerrig, Kering um, and uh, Zalando, which is a, a shoemaker, uh, PVH, which is, which is the men's clothing uh, powerhouse, you know, Calvin Klein, other, other, uh, other brands that you would know of. And of course, um, one of our favorite, well, I will, I'll say it's one of my favorite companies. I won't 
I won't say it's one of your favorite companies, but I'll bet it is. Um, and that's CNA, which has done just a lot of very innovative things with the circular economy principles. And so what they're trying to do is to basically make use blockchain for identifying the origin, the purity, and, and, just, and sort of um, provenance of cotton. And it's being grown in India. That's where the pilot project is taking place. And it's with farmers that support a specific manufacturer, um, Pratiba Syntex. And so, you know, it, it, this builds on a lot of work that this particular company is doing. They've already done projects that are similar in, in coffee, um, in seafood, and so forth. And it's just another example of what's possible. Now, I will say, you know, to put a, a little temper, to temper this a little bit, this is another pilot. Um, but uh, it's, it's pretty interesting, and I'll, I'll, I'll give more details on it in a moment, but I'll bet you have a lot of questions, Joel, that you want to ask me specifically. Well, I, I guess I wanted to hear, you know, how does this get, to your point, from uh, pilot to scale? Mm -hmm. Is that uh, who, who needs to be at the table? What's it going to take? So what I think it needs, first of all, is proof, right? So proof that the, that the data is, is, number one, that, that it's not taxing the farmers too much to, to gather this data, that the data is secure, right? So that there's a way of making sure it's verified um, and that it's, it's tracking exactly what they want to track. So in this particular project, there's uh, some other companies involved that have basically um, marker technologies. So ways of measuring the cotton at the source, um, like through a a barcode, um, a, through a visual snapshot of, of the of the genetic makeup of the cotton, um, and and so forth. So so yes, the thing it is going to take first, first and foremost, is proof proof that is this is a better way. I mean, a better way than I guess you know the other way, which is pen and paper and and sending people out into the field and and so forth. But um, it's also going to take money. Um, you've got a lot of large companies that are that are supporting efforts like this but you know how do you prove how do you make one a standard versus another and so it, it will take a collaboration I think across a sector so in the case of this cotton it's not going to be just one set of companies that can drive this they're going to have to go back to the sector in generally speaking and 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 push it sort of across the sector before I think you can have a true scale. Uh, using partnerships to get to scale, it sounds like pretty much every other thing we do in sustainable business. This episode is sponsored by Stanford University's Strategies for Sustainability Professional Education Program. Help your organization move sustainability from the margins to the core of its mission. Courses online and in person, visit globalimpact.stanford.edu. So the world of paints and coatings isn't necessarily at the top of most people's lists of companies or sectors with major sustainability impacts, but but like any industry, they've got their impacts and their solutions, and perhaps more interestingly, they've gone high-tech. So last week, I had the opportunity to talk with Klaas Krauthoff, the Chief Technology Officer at Exo Nobel. If you don't know what that name, you should. It's been in business since 1792, got like 225 years. 
Exo is a Dutch multinational that creates paints and performance coatings. And what interested me about Exo Nobel is what interests me about so many companies these days, how they're using data and advanced technologies to leverage something as basic as paint or coatings and turning it into a sustainability solution. So I wanted to play a few minutes of the conversation I had with Klaus, the CTO. I asked him to tell me about how ExxonMobil is using data, and the conversation quickly turned to ships. We're using data to predict performance. So ultimately, based on data packs, uh, it allows us to predict how a coating performs. Uh, and as a consequence, we can formulate towards this. Uh, making sure that a product does what it's supposed to do, uh, not under-deliver, but not over-deliver either. This is something which obviously for a lot of customers of interest because you can balance price and performance. But what is probably even more intriguing, at least from my perspective, is uh, we are now, as we speak, even developing new revenue models where we do not necessarily sell paint. I mean, we might want to, but we, we typically we sell... We sell services based on data. Example, we are, as we speak, launching a tool. It's called Drydock Insight. And this tool is a artificial intelligence approach towards all the data we have in our marine business on fouling, uh, on fouling conditions in, in oceans. But it also contains all the digitized information we have over the re recent decades of ship inspections in terms of corrosion uh, and performance. And we collected all these data, and, and that's the only demand you need. You need to really have a lot of data. Um, we asked uh, people who understand artificial intelligence if they would be able to give it a shot. And surprisingly, uh, I have to say, we found patterns uh, which could are helpful in predicting the corrosion and anti-fouling condition of a ship be, be below the waterline without looking at it. So this model of this tool uh, is now being introduced to uh, to our customers, to vessel owners, and gives them a dashboard and and based on data of their ship, based on the on the uh, the, the the routes the ship has been sailing, etc., etc., etc. Uh, we can very accurately predict uh, how the corrosion and fouling performance of that ship is, i.e. when they need to go docking or what they, would like, what they can expect when being docked in terms of maintenance. It's really cool. It's really cool. So for people who aren't familiar with fouling and what that, the, the implications are, what happens uh, when, you, when a ship hull is, is fouled or, and what's the implications of being able to better protect it? When a ship is not properly protected against fouling, you have the, the typical biofouling uh, sticking to the ship, uh, all kind of barnacles and creatures which connect themselves to the hull of the vessel. And this can result in, in serious drag reduction because the ship loses its hydro, hydrodynamic speed. And ultimately, for the bigger tankers or, or cargo vessels, this could result into a fuel bill uh, increase of up to 10%. And, and knowing that the uh, fuel consumption of a ship is by far the biggest cost of a, a ship owner, of a raider, uh, these are tremendous costs and hence 
this is the reason why they're really keen on this to make sure that the fouling uh, condition is properly monitored and taken care of, not earlier, but not later either. Okay, that is fascinating, Joel. Where, but tell me, you asked me about scale. So where is this going? Well, one of the things that Klaus was excited about are paints that have no evaporation, which is nothing goes into the air uh, pollution-wise, but evaporation, he pointed out, is waste. So the holy grail in his world, he said, is how do you put coatings on substrates in a way that creates no emissions and no waste? They're not there yet, but they're working on it. But the other thing that was cool is, is how they're using big data and specifically um, begging, borrowing, and stealing, as he put it, from the gaming industry. So they're using virtual reality to uh, train applicators or to spray or apply paint without actually really doing it so there's less material and waste. And also they're using virtual reality in customer tools to visualize a building or a living room or an office and change the color in real time to see what it looks like. So yeah, who'd have thought that the gaming industry would teach us how to apply paint more sustainably? My name is Holly Seacon, and I'm the associate editor here at GreenBiz. I caught up with Brian Crowley, the CEO of Soylent, at the Future Food Tech Conference in San Francisco last week. Brian, thanks for joining GreenBiz 350. Hey, great to, great to connect and great to be here. So can you walk me through your sustainability journey at Soylent? Uh, yeah, wow, that's a, that's a, a loaded one. So... Yeah, so at, at Soylent, our vision really is about, uh, we kind of imagine a world where everybody has access to complete nutrition and the calories that they need. Uh, and our mission is to make complete, sustainable nutrition accessible, affordable, and appealing uh, to all. So, uh, you know, I think our sustainability uh, kind of journey is really twofold. So the, the biggest part of our sustainability journey is really plant-based. So uh, uh, we, uh, you know, there, there's, there's so much... Uh, that we can do if we can actually start to switch our diets away from animal uh, into more plant-based. And so that, uh, so, so uh, Soylent is 100% plant-based, uh, so vegan, uh, and, uh, and it's always been that way from the beginning because it's always been a mission-driven company. Um, and so that's the first aspect of it. And then the second big aspect is really kind of health and nutrition and sustainability, meaning a more sustainable world, healthier uh, obesity epidemic especially in the Western world, continues to, to, to be a huge problem. And so uh, uh, for us, providing better nutrition, especially in we really focus on that on-the-go occasion where people are skipping meals or they're eating something unhealthy or unsustainable because they don't have access. We call that a food void. Um, and so that really gives us a, um, kind of a way to actually do our kind of small part there as well. For a sustainable business, uh, one of the most important things, you know, is, is sourcing. And so as a plant-based uh, product, you must have a lot of sourcing from different agricultural sources. Can you walk me a little bit through what, um, how you go about kind of procuring the, the soybeans usually? Yeah, so we, uh, yeah, we have, a, as you say, our product has 
right? 400 calories, 20 grams of uh, plant protein, uh, 36 essential nutrients. So soy protein ice, we use a special soy protein isolate. Um, and, uh, and we use, we use soybeans because they're, uh, obviously bioavailable. They've got an amazing amino acid profile. They've got a great taste and texture, uh, especially when you compare them to pea and some of the other proteins that are available. Um, but that's just kind of the start we use. Uh, we, we definitely, we love soy, but we're constantly looking at new sources, uh, especially in the cellular uh, range. And that's kind of partly why we're here as well, because we're always looking for partnerships and opportunities to find companies that are pushing the envelope in, in kind of cellular nutrition. Uh, and so, uh, but relative to your question around sourcing, so we go through a pretty uh, crazy kind of uh, approach in terms of how we how we source uh, and we look at a bunch of different aspects of uh, where the ingredients are coming from and how uh, how they're transported and all of those things and uh, and we actually just completed our uh, a life cycle analysis as well uh, so that's going to be uh, that's up right now going through peer review uh, and so we're really excited uh, relatively soon so don't forget to uh, we'll be reaching out to you so we can uh, share some of those results so that's kind of part of our sourcing as well we're constantly right investing and and making sure that we're investing like life cycle analysis and doing some of these things to 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 make sure we're putting you know again it's a balance right because you got to get the right product with the right nutrition uh, and at the right cost because that's that's part of our you know accessibility and affordability as part of our mission Um, so we're certainly not trying to create products that are super super premium uh, similar to what you see in the kind of organic and non-gmo space it's very there's some great products there but they're all very expensive uh, and uh, and that's kind of a little bit more of what I would call kind of the Tesla model so they want to build these great products try to scale them and then hopefully they can bring down the price to we're trying to do everything that we can to really source products that are already source ingredients that are backed by science they're great ingredients they provide the nutrition that the body needs but they're also affordable. So you touched a little bit on this, but um, what do you see as kind of the sustainable food landscape changing recently, especially here, I guess? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is great. I love walking around uh, this show because you you are seeing it, it is really rewarding to be in this space because we are the last five years have seen quite a bit of investment um, in uh, what we would call kind of food technology and bio and these other things and food ag then tech ag that that actually will help us with with brands that a lot of people now know a bit more like uh, Impossible Foods and uh, and uh, Beyond Meat and some of those, um, but also um, some of the companies that are really trying to, you know, this aspect that we talked about around cellular nutrition. So that that's how I think it's going to change. I think we're finding there, there's a lot of great companies out there that are starting to crack the code in terms of using fermentation technology and GM technology to be able to efficiently and effectively create what ours it's about appealing so great tasting alternatives uh and solve some of the you know some of the challenges that exist now as we move as we move our diets away from animal protein and so soylent is kind of operates a little bit like a tech company even though it's in the food and beverage space which is kind of unique and so you relatively recently hired a new chief of innovation right so how is innovation working at soylent 
No, actually, this uh, we were very fortunate to be able to uh, to get Julie Doust, who uh, just joined us. I think she's three weeks in. She's actually walking around the show somewhere uh, around here. Uh, really talented and and uh, uh, very much focused on our innovation pipeline. Uh, and, and and really, uh, what she's going to be leading and what we're uh, what we've started really probably a year and a half ago is is how do we think about going going from Soylent currently is, let's, let's call it a morning meal replacement drink, comes in powder and drink, to really a more complete nutrition platform you can enjoy throughout the day. So we're, uh, uh, we're, we're talking about now getting back into chewable, um, looking at savory, what are these other ways and how do we reimagine snacking and meals? Uh, and the first iteration is January, uh, uh, right for New Year, New You, we launched Bridge. So which Soylent Bridge is the in-between meal. So it's 180 calories, it's only three grams of sugar, um, lower carb, all of those things that consumers were coming back in our platform uh, and uh, and telling us like, this is really what we like to see uh, and it's doing great. So uh, really, I'm gonna, in, at my talk tomorrow, I'm actually gonna talk about this lean innovation model we're creating and how we're leveraging our direct-to-consumer platform, which gives us a huge advantage over kind of big CPG and big food and beverage because we can actually uh, get our innovation, get it up on the platform, uh, learn, iterate quickly, all while we're actually doing that with consumers uh, versus spending a lot of time and money on research up front just so that you can squeeze a product through the pipeline. Uh, then you have the challenge of retail, which means you know now how do you actually get it out to 30, 50, 60,000 outlets so that you can turn all this marketing on. So our model is a bit different and we think it's the new way if you set it up correctly, which will enable us to really get a lot of innovation out there, get feedback, work directly with consumers, uh, and then scale the winners, right? Scale the winners uh, uh, is, is going to be the key for us. Thanks so much for stopping, Brian. It was really great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Enjoy the show. So before I let you go, I um, want to remind you that there's just uh, one week left to submit your 30 under 30 uh, nominees. We've got uh, a great many in and we've got uh, looking for a lot more candidates for who are the young people uh, under 30, obviously, who are the future sustainability leaders. Uh, just go to greenbiz.com. You'll see a link to the application form and we'll also put that in the webpage for this week's podcast. You can nominate yourself. You'll need a reference or two, or of course you can nominate anyone near and dear in your world, a community, family, friends, colleagues, or whatever. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and find whatever you want to know about the organization's stories and events we've mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, check out our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. And don't forget to subscribe to one or more of our five, count them, five weekly e-newsletters. You'll find Heather's newsletter on Verge Weekly every other Wednesdays, alternating with Shauna Rappaport. My Green Buzz newsletter is fresh every Monday morning. And there are three others on transportation and mobility, clean energy, and the circular economy. Heather and I will be back next week, per usual. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.
This episode is sponsored by Stanford University's Strategies for Sustainability Professional Education Program. Explore the frameworks and tools needed to promote sustainability in your organization. Courses online and in person. Visit globalimpact.stanford.edu.